This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. State Control 911, what's the location of your emergency? December 10th, 2020. Uh, highway I-82, milepost 13. Milepost 13, okay, what can I help you with? At 3.30 p.m. in Pasco, Washington, a driver reports a major accident on the interstate. Uh, I, I looked up and I saw the semi-truck coming into the westbound lane. Okay. I didn't actually... The eastbound semi was hauling a trailer full of potatoes, common load here in a region where agriculture is king. Sounds like it was the wrong way, truck and semi. The driver of the pickup truck had gone the wrong way up an off-ramp. The semi tried to swerve out of the way, but couldn't, and slammed it head-on. The 79-year-old driver of the pickup didn't survive. The tragedy of what happened that Thursday afternoon was all the more attention-grabbing because of the man behind the wheel, a local legend, Gail Easterday. Gail was the patriarch of a farming and ranching empire that sprawled across a vast basin by the Columbia River in southeast Washington state. Their operation was huge. If you're a meat eater in the U.S. and even as far as Japan, chances are good you've bitten into their beef. The Easterdays own ranches, feedlots, vegetable farms, processing plants, restaurants, even a private plane. And Gail's death was the first public crack in the Easterday family facade. In the next few months, the family would appear in headlines again. Here in this corner of southeast Washington state, deals are sealed with firm handshakes and the power of your family's reputation. The Easterday's reputation was ironclad in this community which is why everyone was shocked by what came to light after that deadly crash on the interstate. Cody Easterday, Gail's youngest son, had been using the trust built off his family's good name to steal. A big-time lie. He cheated Tyson Fresh Meats and another big company out of $244 million. It was one of the largest cattle swindles in the history of the United States. And Cody did it by inventing cattle. He made up fake invoices and billed expenses for a herd of hundreds of thousands of animals that only existed on paper, just numbers on a spreadsheet. And this crime was made possible in part by the complexity and scale of our modern ag system. Cody's audacious lie was a fiction that was fed, gained weight, and grew bigger over time. And when it toppled, All that his family had built over four generations fell with it, changing a farming community forever. From KUOW in Seattle and Northwest Public Broadcasting, this is Ghost Herd, a story of a modern-day cattle rustling, a family dynasty, and the myths we tell ourselves about the West. I'm Anna King.
field of dreams. And I got one question for each and every one of you folks out there this evening. Basin City's population is a little over 1,000. It's plunked right in southeast Washington state. It's in Franklin County, which produces more than a half billion dollars worth of hay, corn, potatoes, and other ag products. It's all part of the heavily farmed heart of what's called the Columbia Basin. Ladies and gentlemen, if you please remain standing as we honor our great nation with the singing of our national anthem. Oh. This is the kind of place where workers grab tacos for a quick lunch. There's also lots of steeples here, a Lutheran church, a Spanish parish, and an LGS chapel. Basin City's tire shop carries big tractor tires, and the Columbia River rolls south, just out of town. Basin City is a cowboy town, and as the popular Brooks and Dunn song goes, people wear their boots to dinner, drive their trucks to church. We're at Basin City's annual summer rodeo. About 2,500 people drive in from all over to it each night. And Basin City is the hometown seat of the Easterday family empire. The Easterdays helped put on this rodeo. Five of them sit on the committee, and Gail's grandson, Cody's son, even won the wild cow milking contest. Cutter Easterday, Austin Here in the fertile Columbia Basin, with orchards, grapes, and massive fields of crops, is where the Easterday family built their farming and ranching empire. Gail Easterday's father, Irvin, moved the family here in 1958. Gail would have been about 17 years old. The family moved here from Nampa, Idaho, to 300 acres of undeveloped land. Early on, Gail took right to farming, partly out of necessity, but partly for the love of the land. The farm's company website says that a young Gale spent hours on a caterpillar leveling and clearing the sagebrush in those early days. They're always saying how farming was so hard. Farming was never hard to be. That's Gale Easterday from a video posted on Easterday Farm's Facebook page. He said farming was never hard for him. As Gail got older, he kept up the family operation and married a young woman named Karen. Gail and Karen were workers. This is Ben Casper. Ben was Gail's tire guy. Tires mean the world to a farming operation. Tractor tires don't usually wear out in this country. They weather out. The sun and the rain and the cold beats on them. Ben owned that tire shop in Basin City and would often go up to the Easterday property to deliver tires or propane. And I'm telling you what, Karen was out there in her rubber boots and doctoring 
and feeding and taking care of a big, you don't call them a herd, but a bunch of pigs all the time. They had a big operation there. Ben says Gail had a reputation for loyalty to the people he knew and not taking any BS. To see that in action, you don't have to look farther than his spinning tractor tires. Ben tells me about a time the manager of a tire store in the Tri-Cities tried to take over the Easter Day account, saying that the Easter Day property was closer to his store. And I knew that was not a good idea because I knew Gail. And I said, I don't think you should do that. That's not a good idea. He said, no, it'll be fine. He said, we'll, we'll just transfer it and we'll take it over. No problem. A few days later, Ben's phone rang. It was Gail. And I'm not going to say everything he said, but it was essentially this. Ben, the last time I checked, this was still the United States of America. And I have the right, actually it was the blankety-blank right, to do whatever the blankety-blank I want to do. And if I want to buy tires from somebody, I'm going to do it. And I don't want somebody else coming on my place. Do you get that? And I... He, was, he acted like he was really mad at me when he was saying, I want to keep the business with you. After he hung up, Ben thought, You know, Gail really is a loyal guy, but he's not going to have anybody telling him what to do. You need that determination and grit to be a success in farming. Because in farming, you can do everything right and still fail. The best farmers tell me that they are just two bad years from losing it all. It just takes a market change, shipping problems, COVID, a long spell of drought, or too much heat for it all to tumble. Much of it is out of the grower's hands. And in 1987, Gail and Karen had a bad year. So bad, they went bankrupt. Gail made it clear in that Facebook video that keeping the family in the farming business is what mattered to him. My family's done a big part of it. We play it all online. That's only making it work. Family, there ain't no other reason to build it. Family, there ain't no other reason to build it. It's hard to know the impact of the bankruptcy on the family farm, but two years later, in 1989, Gail's teenage son, Cody, decides not to finish college so he can help his family farm to help them build back from the bankruptcy. Things really changed for Gail when Cody came along. Cody has been described as eager, driven, and a take-no-prisoners-and-get-all-you-can personality. He was forged in the Columbia Basin a young man poised to take over the farming operation. He was ready to grow. Cody's sister said that her brother always wanted to farm, even from very young. She describes how he would play with his mini tractors when he was a little scraper, about three years old. He would plow little fields in his mother's garden. He had family land to start out with, and ambition. From all accounts, Cody is a shrewd businessman, Ben Casper, the tire shop guy, watched as Cody took over more control of the Easter Day operation. He says that Cody was just really aggressive with expanding the farm. I think there was no fear in him, and he just went for the gusto, and he understood everything. He knew just what had to happen, and he did it. Cody was raring to farm. Youth are optimistic, 
He made it happen. By the age of 20, he was responsible for overseeing all financial matters for the family business. The Easterday family website says that once Cody became a partner, the Easterday farm became a father and son enterprise once again. Around the same time, Cody met a young woman named Debbie. Debbie says the two met at the county fair the summer before her senior year of high school. When Cody asked her out on a date a few weeks later, he hinted that they would go see a movie. But on that night, Cody instead drove her to a parcel of farmland that he'd recently purchased. It was at night Debbie described seeing rows of lights off in the distance. Cody explained those were the lights on irrigation pivots watering crops. 23 in total. Debbie says she didn't quite understand his excitement or why he thought this was a good idea for the first date, but his enthusiasm was contagious and intriguing. Cody was beginning to build his empire. As other farmers in the basin sold their land, the Easterdays bought it up. The land they couldn't buy, they rented. The more land they got, the more they could leverage that to get even more land. The Easterdays also bought machinery so they could cut all their own crops. They hired on more people. They bought a potato and onion processing facility so they could own more of the supply chain and put Cody's sister in charge of running it. The entire Easterday family has a strong chain of businesses that interlink. Restaurants, forage companies, construction companies, the produce processing. Together, the family built an empire that corralled millions of dollars each year. The Easterdays own large homes across the Columbia Basin and in Arizona. The family owned a $600,000 private plane hired pro-pilots, and even had an expensive camper they'd take to Washington State University football games to tailgate. So the Easterdays kept buying up property, growing crops, filling in the patches of their quilt. The farm that started on 300 acres of sage-covered land, they grew that into an empire of corn, onions, potatoes, and wheat that spanned tens of thousands of acres over three states. Everybody who watched Easter Days grow uh, knows that it's Cody, because Gail farmed, but he, he didn't, you know, go like crazy. When Cody came in there, he's the one that made it happen. And uh, he, uh, yeah, he's, he's a very talented individual. Cody grew the business in a startling way, from $1 million in revenue when he began to $250 million in just 20 years, from seven employees to nearly 200. But the empire is not all Cody Easterday's doing. To understand the Easterday empire, we first need to understand the landscape it's built on, a unique combo of geology and taken land the foundation of his wealth and power. And it's the foundation of what comes next. We'll plow into it after the break. 
At Soundside, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting Soundside as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for Soundside at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the Soundside podcast. If you look at the area around Basin City on Google Maps, it looks like a patchwork quilt. It has green squares and circles and odd shapes all stitched together with roads tracking north, south, and east, west. This is Easter Day turf. Sand and desert fills in the rest. It's this dirt that makes this land so valuable. This soil provides the medium for the Easter Days to grow their corn and potatoes their onions and hay. But it wasn't always this way. The basin was hostile as it was being developed. This is Chuck Gant. He's another longtime farmer in the basin whose family has a similar origin story to the Easter days. This was a very, very difficult area to start in. It's, it's hard to describe how tough conditions were as you take fields out of sagebrush. Taking a field out of sage means yanking up the old brush with a tractor and hand tools, removing rocks and bunch grass, plowing it under. This is how you turn beautiful desert into fertile farmland. Thousands of years ago, Ice Age mega floods washed down from what's now Montana, bringing in massive amounts of sand and silt. All that sediment in the water was left behind here in the basin. That's why there's ag here at all. It's an ancient conversation between fire, giant floods, and wind. But these early farmers, like the Easter Days, needed water to pour on that desert soil. And the mighty Columbia River runs right through the basin. To tap that, the government built an engineering marvel, the Grand Coulee Dam. And soon water will flow along the pipes into the waiting conduits bringing life to a million dead acres. This concrete behemoth would become the largest hydroelectric producer in the United States. The water it redirects now feeds more than 670,000 acres in eastern Washington. Water is fed through massive man-made canals, concrete rivers really, and then ever smaller canals. It's like large veins that lead to capillaries that feed this body of farmland. Around the same time all this irrigation land was being created, scores of World War II vets, freshly home from the front lines, were looking for work. The federal government saw an opportunity in the basin. President Truman drives to the Grand Coulee Dam for the dedication ceremonies. Mr. Truman says the Grand Coulee Project is the reason the Northwest is America's fastest growing section. World War II vets were given the first crack at owning pieces of this new farmland in hopes of attaining an idyllic middle-class lifestyle. But it wasn't easy. The early farmers in the Columbia Basin had the difficult task to break the land out of sage. When basin farmer Chep was a young kid in school, he didn't know that people actually got to go on vacations during spring break. Spring break was like a different name for rock picking. They were the same name. 
spring break just meant that you got to pick rocks all week. It didn't, you didn't get to pick them just after school. You got to pick all week. Spring break was when the crops were starting to come up, a lot of blooming, a lot of growing of, the, of everything. And, and so you got out of school and you went home and you did whatever work the farm needed. Chep says many of the early farmers slept in army surplus tents. They didn't have actual homes and lived without indoor plumbing for years. But the promise of owning a bit of that dirt kept them working hard. It was just a bleak place to be in all that sand. And how these World War II vets scrapped their way through that is unbelievable. It may be unbelievable, but that only increases Chep's appreciation for the land. Now, the basin feeds much of the world. He steps out onto a stand of Timothy on his farm. Timothy's a forage crop for horses and dairy cattle. It looks like perfect, waist-tall summer grass with bobbing heads of purple. But I was thinking a while ago, you know, America the beautiful. You know, you can see the spacious skies. This is not amber, but it's green waves that you see that, you know, this, this farming and out here, it fits America the beautiful. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains. Well, we can't see the blues from here, but you know, it's, we're just down the hole. We can see them from up on the hill, but it's, it's got all those. What a better place in the world to be than right here. This is it. But this beautiful land had value long before ditch irrigation and row crops. And just about everyone here, including me, has benefited from land taken from tribes. This is not a secret. That doesn't mean it's openly talked about. I want young people who grow up here to comprehend that this is still our home when you live in the Tri-Cities. It's still our home when you live in Walla Walla. It's still our home when you live in La Grande or Hermiston or Milton Freewater. It's still our home when you live in Arlington. We've never abandoned our relationship with the vast homeland. This is Bobby Connor. Bobby's home is on the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation in northeastern Oregon. Her traditional homeland contains the land where the Easterday family farms and benefits from this changed landscape. The idea that the native population of the basin didn't own the lands is an old myth. It was an easy way for settlers to justify taking it from them. Bobby's people were forced onto a reservation and most of their homeland was wrested away from the Cayuse, the Umatilla, and the Walla Walla. Many were sent to live with other tribes, the Nez Perce or the Yakima, But eventually, in June of 1855, the leaders of the Umatilla tribes secured a promise for a small reservation, only a fraction of the lands the tribes used to run, some 6.5 million acres, nearly as much land as the entire state of Maryland. And the consequence is, is that we live in a tiny subset of our homeland. And yet, our brains and our hearts don't embrace the tininess as our homeland. We still 
have the expectation that this vast landscape is still our home. Her concept of home doesn't end at the line on the reservation map. The tribes and bands of the region would often travel multiple trails over the long period from early spring to late fall, a seasonal round. She says they left tools on the landscape, like mortars, pestles, grinding stones, clubs, things made of basalt that you wouldn't carry in your saddlebags from camp to camp. We left them on the landscape where they belonged, where their utility occurred, and we would come back to that place each year and expect to find them there, crossing stones, marking stones for places, um, stories in the rocks. Those all had a home. No fences or banknotes needed to mark out individual ownership of space, but indigenous people owned this land. The seasonal round would take them along rivers, into the mountains, into the plains, and back to the lowland winter grounds, some 1,000 miles each year. Bobby's great-aunt and grandmother traveled those seasonal trails into the 1900s. Bobby tells me her great-aunt traveled those routes on horseback as a child. South towards Granite and Sumter and Ukiah, over to Catherine Creek, over into the Minam, um, down to over to the Snake River, down the Snake, back up around the Snake all the way um, to the Tri-Cities and home again. And she knew the land in a different way. Bobby saw that in the way her grandparents lived, too. She remembers as a child sitting in the back of her grandpa's light yellow 1960s four-door Chevrolet. Traveling along the Grand Ronde River, when I was young, I don't know, I don't recall precisely how old I was, but <clears throat> Grandma started singing a song, an Indian song, a tribal song. And when she got done, she kind of giggled and looked at Grandpa and said, I couldn't remember that song. I thought I'd lost it, but I must have left it here. <laughs> Bobby tells me it wasn't clear to her until much later what her grandmother meant by that. For her, she had left that song along the trail, and she had found it along the trail, and it had been kept in a safe place until she found it again. The land was holding that song. Pushing and fighting Native Americans off the majority of their land meant settlers and later farmers could claim their spot, grow their power and wealth. Cody Easterday has benefited having control of major swaths of Columbia Basin land, but Cody really grew when he leaned into his beef-raising industry. He used his family's good reputation as a young man to partner with Tyson Fresh Meats. Tyson wanted to grow its Wallula plant operation in the Columbia Basin, and Tyson trusted Cody's good reputation to take on the job. And Cody, for his part, double patted down on the cattle business. In a letter to a federal judge, his wife says when he took on this new industry, a cattle feeding business, it was a tremendous amount of work, and he was succeeding. Cody grew his operation to as many as 65 
thousand cattle on two feedlots. When asked how Cody does it, his wife would reply, I don't know, I just know he loves it. Cody tracked down national experts to help him understand cattle habits and how to care for them, vets and even nutritionists from the Midwest to help inform his operation. One such nutritionist would fly in monthly from Missouri to check Cody's cattle. Cody was raising most all his beef for international food giant Tyson Fresh Meats. His animals made up 2% of their total beef operation. His likeness was even plastered on packages of beef sold in Japan under the brand Cody's Beef. All of this success stemmed from his family's great reputation. He was a handshake deal guy, the appearance of an honest dealer. He always struck me as a very solid individual. You know, he was not misleading. He was not arrogant. You know, very trustworthy in any kind of the dealings I'd ever had. Cody is probably a genius in some ways. I've always been able to walk right up and say hi. and Smile and handshake. Yeah. Community supporters. But his bullish nature on business and a dark secret are about to get him in trouble. Soon Cody and his empire are going to fall. He's orchestrated one of the largest cattle rustling schemes in the United States. 265,000 cattle that don't exist. A $244 million scam. Cody's on the very edge. Cody was a bit of a, you know, Icarus that, you know, flew too close to the sun. Federal prosecutors are circling. Cody's facing up to 20 years in prison. Jump in the pickup. I'm going to show you around the Columbia Basin. This is my turf. I've reported for nearly 15 years out here. I've been steeped in alfalfa, spuds, and cattle. I'll tell you a story of rural America. We'll dig into the value of dirt and one family's powerful empire. It's a great American success story that ends crippled by greed. This is Ghost Herd. I'm Anna King. Ghost Herd is a joint production of KUOW, Puget Sound Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting, both members of the NPR Network, a coalition of public media podcast makers. To support our work, contribute to KUOW, NWPB, or your local NPR station, and tell a friend or two about this podcast. It helps. And a quick correction. An earlier version of this story misstated when the Ice Age floods occurred. Most of those massive floods happened between 15,000 to 20,000 years ago, and some may have occurred as long as a million years ago. Ghost Herd is produced by Matt Martin and me, Anna King. Whitney Henry Lester is our project manager. Jim Gates is our editor. Original music written and performed by James D. Kindle. Recorded by Addison Schulberg, 
with additional musicians Roger Conley, Andy Steele, and Adam Lang. I'm your host, Anna King. If you have thoughts or questions about Ghost Heard, we're listening. Get in touch at kow.org slash feedback. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.